Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Today's episode is brought to you by Bombas Socks. Bombas are the most comfortable, best-fitting socks I've ever worn. They sent me a whole bunch, and I'm really digging them. They have these awesome blister guards on the athletic socks, which are really perfect. Additionally, Bombas donates one pair of socks to those in need for every pair purchased because socks are the number one requested item in shelters across the United States. Right now, you can find out about these great socks for yourself with a 20% discount, plus get free shipping on your first order when you pick four or more pairs of socks. Go to bombas.com, that's B-O-M-B-A-S.com, and you'll get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order of four or more pairs. Bombas has a 100% satisfaction guarantee. You love them or your money back, no questions asked. Again, that's B-O-M-B-A-S.com for 20% off and free shipping when you pick four or more pairs. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 181. We're recording on Thursday, October 27th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Rebecca, Hello. Uh, happy Halloween weekend. Thank you. Is what it is. Do you do, do you like Halloween? You know, I am pretty neutral on Halloween. Okay. Usually I like the opening the door and giving candy to kids Yo. in cute costumes, but this year I am Halloweening. Oh, you! What is that? What does that mean? I am Halloweening. I'm gonna like dress up and do the thing with um with some friends in Richmond yeah. who are super into Halloween. So I am living into my life's purpose, and I have a mermaid costume. There, you, I was gonna say you're you're pre-haired for that. I um, am pre-haired for it. Um, I also have to dress up. Uh, our, our kids, you do. yeah, and as you as you know, this fits right into my personality. It's exactly <laughs> what I like to do. I am delighted just uh, by the notion. Our, our 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 kids got invited to a Halloween party at some of their you know little friends' house, and uh, hard to say no to kids dressing True. up and going to their friend's house for Halloween. But the the hosts demand that the parents also dress up. And the theme like is a superhero people. and have to dress up okay. as a superhero. So who are you? Well, um, also in classic Jeff fashion, I'm going to cheat a little bit. <laughs> and I'm going to be Clark Kent. Okay. And uh, I have a suit mm-hmm. and I have like a Superman t-shirt. Okay. And I'll have, I'll like pin my, my tie like flying over my shoulder and like the top couple buttons where you can see my S underneath. It's low key cosplay. It's low key. Yeah. It's on the DL. Um, so anyway, there's that there. Uh, before we get into the, the main part of the show, a couple follow up emails from uh, librarians who oh, wanted, we love you, librarians. wanted to chime in about the stat we talked about last week. 19% of books purchased by libraries either get one or zero checkouts. Uh, uh, let's see, um, a couple librarians that get sent us really good emails, Molly and Emily, thank you so much. I'll shout you out for the effort you put into it. Uh, Molly said she thought it would be a lot higher. Mm. Uh, her guess was 40%. She's worked in all kinds of libraries. And so there's a couple factors she's, she's talking about. One is sometimes they select things based on what the librarian likes. Like that's some the personal judgment. It looks awesome. Mm. We need to have it, that kind of thing, sure. which may not play out. Um, sometimes they have budgets in certain genres, like they have uh, line items for children's nonfiction, young adult. And so if you have to fill out that line item, maybe you're not picking based on what you think is going to circulate. Based, you have to you have to do put a checker on a checker, right? There's that too. Yeah. Um, they do the best possible, but um, you know that's that's 
those human things get in the way a little bit. You know, ideally it would be nice if you didn't have, but you didn't spend that budget could roll over, but a lot of budgets don't work that way. Oh, you didn't spend that. We'll just cut that budget because we can send that somewhere else. So they might end up buying stuff just so they can keep the budget for next year. Um, She said some libraries that she's seen in the university world are moving to something called patron driven acquisition, which is you keep your, you basically keep your budget powder dry. And Mm -hmm. once someone requests something that you don't have, you buy it. Oh, interesting. So you get, I guess you basically guarantee one, mm-hmm. you know, I guess that would still fall in 19%. But if one person rec- uh, asked for it, the chances are, you know, it's a pretty good social indicator that there's probably going to be other people out there. Emily was asking about um, the context. She says, does that include reference literature? Good question. Stephanie Anderson actually addressed that on Twitter shortly after the, the initial tweet that got this started saying it does not include reference literature. Uh, okay. So, anyway. Uh, we also had a comment from Susie, who's a librarian. Oh, I didn't um, see she that. She left okay, a comment great. on the show notes from last week, and she said that uh, in her experience, she didn't think the one or zero checkouts was likely in the lifetime of mm. a book, but that it sounds likely for any given year. And she gave examples from her own library because they try to be very data-driven and said that uh, last year, on average, their turnover rates uh, were, for all fiction, 2.4 checkouts, hmm. for all nonfiction, 1.1 checkouts, for all all young adult 2.9 checkouts and for all kids books 4.3 wow. so ranging from really about one to four checkouts per hmm. item um yeah is this the average though it's really right? interesting the, yeah. the average though could still account for 20 percent not being checked out at all right like if right. uh you know i remember remember i don't know i guess it was two years ago we played a little bit of library hold watching with mm-hmm. um i guess it was uh it wasn't gone girl no it was, it was uh, between the world and me yes when it right. came out and there were like a 400 long hold mm-hmm. list, right? So if that thing got checked out a tenth of that, right? If, if right, only 40 right. of those people actually checked mm-hmm. the book out that year, that can make up for a lot of zeros. So sure, it's also yeah. hard to say. Um, but that's a super interesting stat. It I'm really, really glad to have that. Um, thank you, uh, librarians. Gotta, thank yes. you, uh, Book Riot podcast listeners. You people know such you interesting do, things. They do. It's almost if we don't, if, it's <laughs> like if we don't know something, other people might. It's, it's almost like we don't know everything. I mean, that's. that's <laughs> I'm beginning to get the sense that it's possible. It's only taken five years for you to come around to that. Oh, I'm not around to it. I'm just wondering. <laughs> I'm just, just I, maybe. I, I got my, my spidey sense is tingling. Like, Going to meditate know, I, on this possibility. May, may, maybe I don't have the, the sum total of all human knowledge uh, at my disposal. <laughs> Why don't you tell me about our first sponsor? Yeah, let's That's do that you before do I get too, um, too, uh, too uh, grandiose. Um, uh, book right, uh, excuse me, Penguin Random House Audio. We talked about it a little bit last week. I, I want to just put stuff in crockpots right now. I don't know if mm-hmm. it's like biological when the weather turns and <laughs> the leaves it's falls. Like hibernation prep. Yeah, actually, that that's uh, that go, goes all the way back to caveman days. You, 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 the weather would turn and you just put meat on the fire. It's just what you want to do. So it's cooking season, getting into it now. Maybe you're baking cupcakes. Maybe you're you know having a, a bunch of people over and you're getting ready for a Halloween party. Maybe try listening to audiobook while you 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 dice and chop and sift and pinch. Uh, so you can spend hours in the kitchen prepping for meals. This good audiobook and a story can really help you along, really makes the time fly. Uh, they suggest a couple things. Cooking for Picasso, The City Baker's Guide to Country Living, uh, our great cooking memoir. So you, it's not, you know, a, re- a recipe book. You're reading about, um, you know, you're listening to someone talking about their life and food. Also, if you're looking for something funny, Where Am I Now by Mara Wilson is out. Uh, and she narrates herself. It's a really funny audiobook. Um, they can be, let audiobooks be your secret ingredient this holiday oh, season. I so, like that. so instead of saying, you know, well, this is so good, what's in it? Don't say love, say it was um, an audiobook from PRH Audio. And yeah, everyone would be I like, can... oh, I get yeah. it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can second the emotion for Where Am I Now by Mara Wilson. Um, she's one of our Book Riot Live yes. special guests, and I have the honor and really exciting pleasure of moderating a panel with her and Walter Mosley. Oh, that's uh, so going to be great. I am reading Where Am I Now right now and really loving it, but I imagine it would be awesome on audio. She has a great voice. Mm-hmm. She does voiceover work on Welcome to Night Vale. She's a good a whole follow bunch of on Twitter, things. too, by the way. She is a great follow on Twitter. She's a really interesting woman, uh, but I'm super excited that we'll have her at, at Book Riot Live, and I will second the emotion for Where Am I Now being a great read. I'm, I'm sure it's wonderful on audio. So that's tryaudiobooks.com slash cooking for a free download and get started listening to some uh, uh, culinary audiobook stuff. All right, news time. Uh, big news of the week, Man Booker. Yeah, yeah. Right? Get, get what, what happened? Well, what happened Paul here? Beatty, the author of The Sellout. The Sellout. Won the Man Booker Prize and became the first American author to win mm. the Man Booker Prize. Um, that's significant in and of itself, but that the first American author to win the Man Booker did so with a racial satire. Yes. That's pretty particular to American history and mm-hmm. politics, I think makes it even more uh, noteworthy. And uh, one of the judges, Amanda Foreman, said that the book manages to eviscerate every social taboo. I am. This has been sitting on my desk for literal months now. Um, I'm going to have to read it. This is. Soon. I love this book, and I read it a million years. I, I mean, the the calendar for the Man Booker is super weird. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. this book came out in like February 2015, I think, or so, or like right. last spring. Um, so it's been out a minute. Um, so, and the, the blurb is it's about a young black man who tries to reinstate slavery and racial segregation in a suburb of Los Angeles. So it's very much in, it's a satirical tradition. There's also, there's a really good tradition of satirical work, um, in African American literature of, of a way of, of attacking white supremacy, uh, and thinking about it. Um, and it's an amazing win for him. It's a great book. You know, he, he was also, um, uh, I think I read this right somewhere else, that he was one of the Grand Slam champions of the New Yorkian Poets Cafe at some point. Oh, um, wow. So he has, a, he has a, a background in spoken word and slam poetry, too, which interesting is interesting. Um, you know, he's, he's been doing this for a while. And enormous congratulations uh, to, to Paul, Betty. Uh, an amazing win. I, I, our contributor core, if, for those of you thinking about reading it, We've we've had some people say, if you don't like satire, you're not going to like this. You know, some people just don't like like the whole satirical mm-hmm. thing, and like that's I think that's fair here. Um, it is I think you're right. It's a specific thing, not just in terms of topic and geography, but in terms of tone and attitude. Like I was looking at the Man Booker list, and I, when's the last sat- what, what satirical work to win? Yeah, I, I, don't I, I don't see one that again. I haven't read all of these, but nothing jumps out of me of being like this. Um, and coming off Marlon James's win last year for A Brief mm-hmm. History of Seven Killings, two really, uh, I guess, different books. I mean, they're not they're they're different. They're really different stuff. They're not sort of the thing that has sometimes wins, which is a really beautiful literary fiction. Someone from Britain, right? That's kind of the right. cliche of the Booker. Um, so anyway, I don't I don't know if there's anything to make of this being the first American to win. Americans haven't been eligible for that long, so it's not like the first year in the three hundred thousand year history of the Booker American has won. Right. It's only been a few years, but, but nonetheless, richly deserved. Yeah, and uh, Lisa Lucas from the National Book Foundation was pointing out on Twitter that with Marlon James having won last year, I think her language was uh, that the blackest books have won mm. for two years in a row, and this is something to be looking at with yeah. uh, really the world paying better attention uh, to great works of fiction in particular that aren't written by white people. Yeah. Remind me, um, remind me to, to next week to pull out the publishers weekly and look at sales to see if it does anything. Oh yeah. Cause we don't, yes. cause this is the most prestigious, 
book in the book award in the Western world, right, for mm-hmm. a single title. Um, in America, it's not as big a deal as a Pulitzer National Book Award, but this is the English-speaking world's single title award, really, especially yeah, for fiction. Anecdotally, I saw a bunch of the bookstores that I follow on Instagram uh, make, making posts and uh, showing photos like of empty shelves yeah. where the uh, sellout was supposed to go because they had sold out. Um, I don't know how much of that might have to do with like having had two copies on yeah, hand I don't know. and then <laughs> a good point. he won and they were gone uh, versus like we had a jillion of them and then demand just increased. Uh, but yeah, definitely interesting to see over the next couple of weeks what happens uh, to the book. It would be fun to start watching Library holds for it now too i wonder if that changes oh uh, yeah after a, a book wins a wins a prize i mean there's probably the libraries don't have 50 of these sitting around there's just no way i had some people just in my regular life i mean they know i'm into books and sort of what i do for a living so if the if a book thing happens like when dylan won and right. you know everything um they asked me a lot and i don't think i've had that experience with the booker before uh, maybe a, you know some sort of recency bias right i don't know but i feel like more people have been talking about it in my everyday life yeah it's the it's popping up i think more into american media yeah. because the winner is american um than the man booker prize typically does i've had this oh that's thing. a good sure of course it's an american everyone's tweeting first american to win people right. paying attention right uh, anyway so uh, great that's that's a uh, congratulations to, to him. Um, Where do you want to go here? Let's we go to Obama. Weird, yeah, let's go to okay. POTUS. Um, so uh, in, in November, President Obama is going to be a guest editor of Wired magazine. Um, and, and over the last few weeks, well, I mean, uh, lame duck, well, he's not lame duck yet, but almost lame duck Obama is one of the great Obamas uh, and one it's- of the great sort of <laughs> political leadership moments I, I've ever, uh, I've yes. ever witnessed. Um, but he's also sort of letting his nerd flag fly. Like he did a list of, uh, or he listed off his favorite science fantasy and uh, movies. He did a mm-hmm. list of those. And so he's just, I think he's having fun. Um, his approval rating is really high. So he feels, you know, he doesn't have anything on the line for an election. So he feels liber- liberated. In my opinion. He's looser. Just kind of looser with this kind of stuff. Yeah, looser Obama, which is probably the most uh, child-friendly way yes. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. describe it. Uh, or as we would say on all the books, he has no foxes left to Oh, give. yes. There are there are no, indeed. There are none left. In <laughs> he the, is uh, fox-free, and it is delightful. But this is substantial. Um, as you were saying, he's going to be a guest editor for Wired Magazine. And in advance of that, he gave them a list of his essential reads. Mm-hmm. And it is an interesting. What do you think of this? Because we, we, when we got his summer reading list, we, I don't we say that like, we oh, dinged him. We're like, oh, okay, right. but um, it was very safe. That very summer safe. How about list. this one? I, I like this list better. I feel like I do too. That yeah. summer reading list was safe, and it felt to me a little strategically constructed mm-hmm. for uh, look how acceptable the summer yeah. reading list is. There's nothing crazy. On this list, no. Um, but there, I think it really shows the well-roundedness of uh, Obama as a thinker, mm. um, because we get the stuff you get, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln in nine volumes. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, that's about as. I mean, come on, uh, uh, yeah. the collected work of Abraham Lincoln. Like, of course, President Obama has read the collected mm. works of Abraham Lincoln. Of course, he's read the Power Broker. Of course, he's read the Fire Next Time. Yeah. Um, but then there's the broader interest in humanity yeah. and psychology that I think that we've seen increasingly from him yep. for the last eight years. And so there's our favorite, Thinking Fast and Slow, oh. by Daniel Kahneman. 
Ugh. I know that you made like a happy little, maybe oh. a silent because you're you. I almost you jumped like- into the my Ethernet cable <laughs> to try to hug Obama when I saw Thinking Fast. And I know, slow. like, uh, oh, we like the same 800-page book about you cognition. Like, you know, it's like I want to do a Sally Field. We like the same books. We like the right. same books. Uh, there's Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. Mm-hmm. Um, and then The Sixth Extinction yep. uh, by Elizabeth Colbert. That I, was a little bit of a surprise that uh, book, to me. That book, that's a keep you up. Have you done that one? No, That's I a keep you up at night thing. Yeah. Um, really interesting. I think a little of a surprise here, but very well-rounded. Wired notes that... Um, if you want to read all of these, you're going to spend about 89 hours. But they also estimate thinking fast and slow at seven hours, which is not right. I don't know how. I mean, they, I don't know <laughs> if they're looking at an abridged version because I'm looking at it on my shelf. And that it's thing big. is 600 pages of it is, pretty dense stuff. It is. like It is a slower read than whatever your average reading yeah. rate is. Thinking fast and slow is slower than that because it is dense and so thinky appropriately. And sapiens w- is long. <laughs> Yeah, all actually, all of these wired estimates for time to read a thing seem wrong to me. Yeah, the um, Andy Grove they estimated eight hours, so that's going to take you an hour longer than well, thinking fast and, and slow. That right. is, that is that is categorically and they untrue. Nineteen hours for the Power Broker, but only seven hours for thinking fast and yeah. slow. Well, the so, Power Broker is long, so I'm not. I don't doubt. I'm yeah, actually not sure what the number is, but but not denser than thinking fast. And I have slow. a working theory of this list. Do you want to hear what it is? Tell me. This is um. This is a, a troll. This is a this is a mad trolling of the right. I think so too. I we I mean we have been running some recommended reading lists yep. uh, for particular candidates who are not Hillary Clinton uh, this week, and I was wondering what would happen if someone were just to straight up ask him what his essential mm-hmm. reading list is. I think first of all we wouldn't get a real answer, right? Um, but I agree. I, this is well timed mm-hmm. as a reminder of um, what a what a true intellectual, but also man of the people. Well, even uh, just look at some President of the issues, Obama right? Is. Like we've got mm-hmm. race, right? We've got civil rights. Um, We've got, uh, you know, the power broker is about a New York titan who screws everything up from hubris. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) um, We've got, uh, we know it's uh, the fire next time is overtly about white supremacy in America. Andy Groh's biography He's an immigrant. Like, that's his thing. Mm-hmm. It's about him well, coming and, uh, from behind Hungary. The, behind the Beautiful Forevers yeah. is on here. Sapiens, a mystery of human. I mean, that's about evolution and coming to be human. Thinking fast and slow is about, you know, uh, being a critical thinker. Um, <clears throat> and um, the sixth <laughs> extinction is climate change. Don't send us angry emails, folks. We don't care. <laughs> oh, yeah. I absolutely don't. Absolutely. Actually, you know what? Spend 10 hours writing them. <laughs> you know, really lay into it. Maybe on November 8th, spend the whole day. <laughs> writing us angry emails. That'd be fine. I'll guarantee you I'll read it. I promise. I'm not lying at all. This is not all, not at all reverse. I mean, I'm going to read it. That's Anything right. you would add to this list? I was thinking mm. based on these recommendations, what else I would send him? Like, I hope that someone has sent President Obama a copy of The Fire this time. Like, he has talked about reading Salvage mm. the Bones before. Uh, I'm pretty sure. It's like, we know that he knows who Desmond Ward is. Yes. I need to think that he's read that. I'm pretty sure that Between the World and Me was on one of the other lists we've seen of something that yeah, he's been he, reading. Yeah, he read that when it came out um, last summer, I'm pretty sure. I yeah, uh, I would add Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching by Michael mm. Denzel Smith, which I picked up this summer in Portland. Um, hmm. I feel like President Obama might also like The Wongs versus the World for a yeah. lighter, some lighter fiction. I mean, I guess the way I would go in recommended reading is like what, what maybe he's not as great about 
You know, mm, I, mm-hmm. I, I like President Obama. I don't love the extrajudicial drone strike stuff. Yeah. So, stuff, you know, stuff about the radicalization of the Middle East and how that stuff goes down. Um, I think that would be an interesting one. I think Neurotribes by Steve Silberman would be oh, super yeah, interesting. yes, yes. Um, you know, as someone book. in power thinking about, dis- I don't even think of it in terms of disability more, but a range of ability and a range yeah, of learning styles and um, ways of being a person in the world uh, when it mm-hmm. comes to your chemistry and physiology. Um, those would be a, you know, just a couple of general um, ideas, but a really interesting list and a, and a mad, subtle troll. Yeah. Uh, of everybody Yeah, else. this is a wicked, yeah. excellent troll. Yeah, a very good uh, troll. I think I would send our president some Brene Brown, mm. some You think he a, needs Brene? You know, know, I think he does. I think there are moments, one of my quibbles has been that there have been moments where I think he has hesitated to do the really bold, good, right mm. thing uh, in service of not angering the middle. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would like, I think that, I think that, I think he could be a little more yeah. radical. Maybe yeah, radical, it's hard to know more... with those if that's politically expedient or. Yeah, yeah it's that's hard to true. Know. And also, but we didn't even mention hurt. the dubious battle on here by John Steinbeck, which is about people joining the Communist Party and organizing. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Do you think that he just cackled while he made this? I, I don't know. I'd like to know. You know where where does the, where does his reading time fall over his presidency? Like where does. He, when he does read, what, how does it, how? is it just weekend mornings? Like, is he up in the middle of the night? Is it on air force? Like, I, you know, I've got a lot of questions for Obama, the reader. Um, Maybe Marilyn Robinson can interview him now. Yeah. Well, I, I need just, a, I want just a straight up, you know, like I used to do reading lives. I just need to know, like, where do your books go? Do you, I mean, I need to yeah, know like, like the nitty gritty. Does he here. read for like, I was telling, um. I got to be the Rita's last guest for yes. Dear Book Nerd uh, last week. Which is and out now. Go listen to it. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so much fun. And that show has had an amazing run. But we were talking about how to get extra reading time in. Mm-hmm. And I was telling her, like, I started getting up half an hour earlier this year so that I could have some reading time in the mornings. And I wonder, like, President Obama probably gets up in the middle of the night already. Uh, and there's the running joke about how he's early to everything. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, like, does he get up at, you know, 30 minutes early and have... Is yeah. that when he gets his book in before the time that he owes uh, to the people begins? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is he out on the on the West Wing porch like with a cigarette reading? You know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's I need to find think that that's somewhere. what's happening. Okay, where should we go next? Where do you want to go next? <laughs> I don't know because right now I'm just thinking about us interviewing President Obama. Okay, why don't you tell me um, about our next sponsor? Let's do that. Okay, then. our next sponsor is at Nat Geo. Uh, these are the folks at. National Geographic, uh, which if you are on Instagram and you are not following at Nat Geo, you need to be. They are the world's top media brand on Instagram with over 61 million followers. Uh, at Nat Geo features the most liked, commented on, and favorite photos from a ton of National Geographic's uh, photographers. It's really, it really is an iconic Instagram account. It's this amazing combination of expertly curated and favorite National Geographic photographs. Um, they also tag the photographer who took them. So if you are into photography and travel and culture and learning about the world, uh, you will be able to then follow a whole bunch of other photographers who do amazing things. As I said, they have over 61 million followers. The images have been liked more than 2 billion times. And it's a cumulative voice. Uh, Photographers take turns sharing images. uh, And there are just a ton of perspectives. I've been following Nat Geo and Instagram personally for a few years now. Mm -hmm. And it's 
it's really it adds to my Instagram life because it's like there's a book, there's a book, there's a dog, there's a dog. Mm. Here is an amazing place in the world I've never <laughs> heard of with a few paragraphs about it. Uh, you can also check out at Nat Geo. Uh, it's a book that features 300 stunning and expertly curated color photographs that include throwbacks from the National Geographic Archives. Um, ringing my personal bells lately at Nat Geo's Instagram account uh, has featured stuff about the national parks and about millennials, the technology generation, going back into nature and getting off the grid. It's been really fascinating. Uh, so you can get this book at Nat Geo that collects 300 of the best color photographs and some throwbacks from the Nat Geo archives. Mm. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. This is, I think, the must-have coffee table book of the year. Mm. Um, so we'll have a link to it in the show notes. You can check it out wherever books are sold. And thanks to National Geographic and at Nat Geo for sponsoring this Sounds week. like a good gift for like um, your retired or soon to be retired parents or aunts or uncles or grandparents mm -hmm. that are getting in you know, getting their travel getting their travel on. Yeah, that's a great idea. It's a it'll be a good um Swiss Army recommendation yeah. this year, I think. Um and I really have loved the the variety. Like some of them are travel focused, um some of them are nature, some of them are culture, people from cultures, you know, all the way around the world and blurbs about what that photographer has been up to, what they learned at that culture. Some links pop up occasionally to like Nat Geo cover stories. Uh, it's really, really well rounded and I imagine that the book is the same thing. Let's talk about J Pat. <sighs> J Pat. Throwing his two cents in. Like you know, <sighs> Uh, J-Pat is not afraid to get out there. He is, we, we compared him to Jan, uh, Dan Brown as uh, mm -hmm. someone who, you know, not afraid to mix it up in the public. Um, speaking of someone with no foxes to give, the, this is an article <laughs> in Time. Is the, it says, Patterson is author of more than 147 novels, which have sold a combined 300 million copies. So, <laughs> okay. Nothing to lose, really, mm -hmm. <laughs> from James Patterson. Uh, the, the, he is uh, insulated by a giant pool of cash. Um, but he's got into the mix, and it, this is a, a piece in time, and I'm not really sure. It, it's a bit of a mess. Uh, it is a bit of – it's a big mess. And he's basically arguing – tell me if this I've got this right – that – he doesn't really reference this – I guess he says, you know, oh, here, yeah. Uh, le, the majority of potential voters in this country are reading less than 10 minutes to day, a day is sort of the poll quote at the beginning. That's not his sort of. It is the poll quote at the beginning. It is. And the argument there is implicitly that that's why our, this election has been such a disaster. Garbage fire. Uh, yeah, just such a very traumatic, infuriating, unprecedented, um, I, I'd say less than ennobling venture for the American populace. Um, and I guess I don't disagree with him and that sort of idea that this has been not that pleasant. It's And he's arguing, though, that it's... I guess because people don't read enough. Is that the is that the is that the, the spine I, of the argument? Yeah, here? it's he doesn't make the argument very clearly, no. but I think the line that he's trying to create is people read less. If they read more, they would be more educated. They uh -huh. would understand more about how our country really works and about societal issues. And then they would make what he perceives to be better decisions mm -hmm. about their political views and their votes. And we would not end up with particular candidates being widely supported, mm -hmm. um, which education has a liberalizing effect. Mm -hmm. Like this is a documented thing. Um, but I think his, pr 
his premise is wrong. There's like there's a sentence in here where he says, I'd argue, and not just for the sake of my day job as a novelist, that if we're not in the habit of reading books or at least long-form articles that take us the better part of an hour in the course of an entire day, we are fundamentally damaging our society's fabric and our future. And I would like to know Mm -hmm. where in the past the majority of Americans were doing this. Right. Um, or where in the past, any methodologically sound study <laughs> that suggests that there's any correlation. I mean, yeah, this is I, an arbitrarily picked number. A better par- what's the better part fe- of an like, hour? Thirty one minutes. Right. Throw some feelings at things here. Yeah. Um, reading is great, and we all believe that. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure that you would be in favor of encouraging everyone to read more, and that you believe that reading and education and literacy are important and that being an informed voter is an important thing. And I think we can all agree that having a baseline level of literacy, not just in the ability to read words, but to comprehend the message Mm -hmm. affects a person's um, ability to make any kinds of decisions, including voting decisions. But American democracy is not does not have a baseline literacy right. requirement. You don't have to, and this is fundamental. And to that the, has led us to some bad places in the past when we thought about it. I linked, yes, I linked um, is, a couple weeks ago to a voter literacy test from Louisiana in the '60s that was basically mm-hmm. intended to keep black voters from black people from being right. able to the, vote. And has, it's a disaster. It's a horror. It has show. racist implications. It has classist implications. Mm-hmm. It gates. It, it gates what democracy is supposed to be. Right. And as much as the ideal is to have everyone be a good reader and everyone be literate and to be able to believe when you go into the voting booth that everyone else who's going into the voting booth is literate and educated and making a, a thought out sound choice. That is not how a democracy that allows every person mm-hmm. to cast a vote works. Yeah, what it if you're blind? Baked. What if you it is, uh, right. Spanish it is, is your first language? We've talked before is, about how you can't find Spanish right. language. Books it is baked libraries. into democracy that everyone gets to vote barring, you know, having had your vote taken away from like being a felon, everyone gets to vote. And that's it, period, you get to vote, um, regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, regardless of how educated or not you are, the policies in the country affect you. And so you get a vote on who makes the policies. And I get that JPAT wants people to read more. And I see the connections that he's trying to draw. But this feels a lot to me like yearning for the good old days when the good old days that you're yearning for never really existed. Like, at what point did we have Americans who were so literate and so educated that everyone was spending an hour a day reading and consuming and thinking about news? This is very, uh, this is very elitist. And even if that were the case, uh, the the argument that links reading more than an hour, the better part of an hour today, to better political outcomes. I, I guess right. that's why. I mean, that's the. the I don't know because like the. Th- I I don't know what his political leanings are. I, just from the context, I'm guessing he's really upset about Trump and everything going around Trump. This is not. I don't think this isn't. This is about like people voting for Clinton, right? This is not what this is. I don't think. I, I yeah, I think you're right because like I, I don't. Just to look at one thing, like people age 75 or older read about an hour a day. That's in his, that's in his line, which – and he says, the habit drops off through each 10-year bracket below until you get to people ages 35 to 44, 
Well, if this is about the rise of Trump and Trumpism and all the things around it, I don't know if Patterson has looked at the voting patterns of people ages 75 and older in this election. <laughs> They're all voting for Trump. Mm-hmm. Reading an hour a day has not inoculated him from his, them from his craziness. So I, and that alone right there, the whole thing comes tumbling down because there's no correlation. Again, if the assumption, which I think is right here, if we, if we, we give him um, truth serum, Patterson's like, is this really about all the stuff going around around Trump? Then, then the correlation falls. Then there's an inverse. Cor- we should have people reading less, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah and it, it neglects, makes no sense. It neglects that what the internet has done and how that is connected. I think to what we are seeing, to some of the positive things that we're seeing uh, in the culture and in this election cycle. Because he is going after adults who absorb words only through captions, tweets, post memes, and smartphone screen size articles. That's just like, the internet straw man argument. But, That's so dumb. right. Yeah, yeah. First of all, those articles that appear on this on your smartphone screen, you can read them on paper sized mm-hmm. objects too. Should you wish to read them on a laptop or a tablet or like I don't know, press the print button like this is the and so much it it also neglects the fact that so much of trumpism is a reaction Mm. to people who aren't rich white men getting a voice right and they're getting a voice from tweets and posts and those articles that you read on your smartphone Mm -hmm. yeah and the the makeup of who has a voice in conversations around election and democracy is changing um, and we are seeing reactions to that. But I just don't think that everybody sitting down to read news for an hour a day is the solution. Yeah. Well, he doesn't here. even talk this, about content. It's just this piece is a mess. It's just it's, it's just, just, just reading mess. for the better part of an hour every day. And it, it goes back to this thing that sometimes we see crop up in, I think, in our own thinking, especially though I try to read it out of my own, I have to admit, and sort of comments about like, you know, reading, like, you know what, uh, Ben Kingsley in uh, Schindler's List, you know, like, the list is life. The list is an absolute, I think we sometimes do that just about reading uh, devoid of context, devoid mm-hmm. of content, just, just like reading is, you know, it, it's that, it's the thing in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Better. Like, it just is this sort of glowing fount of, uh, of value. And that, if we just did more of this glowing font of value, Everything would be better, and I think that's ridiculous. I mean, I I do what I do because I love books, right? And don't, but I think we just we just can't say, well, if everyone just read as much as I did, because that's the other thing that's going on here, right? Is mm-hmm. if everyone was just more like me, everything right. would get sorted out, which is the, the nar- narcissism on a grand scale. <laughs> Not how democracy works. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, yeah, it's it's a mess. The um, I wish that I had starred the tweet from one of our. Listeners sent this to us. Yes. And like, please read this and talk about it because she knew that we would have. I would have missed it. I think. Reaction I don't think it. I would have seen it if she hadn't said I it. I would have missed it as well because it's not a book headline mm-hmm. about James Patterson. And one of the things that she noted was it, with him in particular, it seems to be the actions are good, uh, but talk less. <laughs> like, he's mm-hmm. donating money, he's you know, creating cool campaigns for independent bookstores. He does a lot of interesting work um, for literacy and for getting kids reading. But I think he over this looks to me like overestimating the amount of people that actually care what James Patterson thinks about. Mm. He's not a political figure. He's not a literary figure who addresses culture and politics. Not a literacy like, scholar, you know, nothing, right. there's nothing and here that's that interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, this is a mess. It is, you're right. I mean, I think you put your finger on something I hadn't seen that there is, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of elitism here that is a cause of what we're seeing, not a symptom, mm-hmm. right? You know, right. this is 
reacting to. Oh, you think I need to read, uh, you know, I need to read Alan Hollinghurst an hour a day or I, I shouldn't mm-hmm. be able to vote. I mean, or, or, or I'm going to make terrible decisions and I can't tie my shoes and, you know, I can't get through the world. Right. Like, this is a... This is a terrible, concrete example of the kinds of elitism that liberals are accused of frequently. Yes, right, right. Of like what I I don't count as a voter if I don't read the way that you think mm-hmm. that I should read or the type of information that you think that I should read. Um, Twitter has been an amazing source of breaking news, mm-hmm. um, especially breaking political news and fact checking mm-hmm. in this election cycle. Um a person can become quite educated about what's happening in the world with the right good Twitter follows. Yep. Uh, well, and, and I wouldn't be able to destroy his argument about 75 years, people years old reading a bunch if I hadn't been reading 538 for 10 minutes a day. For right. the, I mean, that's not an hour. And mm-hmm. I, I've, I don't know. Like, again, yay reading. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Take it as read. Yay reading. Let us all assume that everyone here yeah. is yay but reading. But the straight line sort of cause and effect, like if everyone just read more, like if we snapped our fingers tomorrow and everyone was reading 31 minutes a day of like long form n- narrative nonfiction, nothing, we know, we just, we we just solve, know it wouldn't be different. It, we just, it would not be any different. Racism or sexism or white supremacy. Yeah, it just does It's not a magic. It's not magic. F- it's yeah. not magic. It's great, but it's not magic. Mm-mm. Okay. Speaking of someone who might be magic, um, William oh. Shakespeare. Okay. Um, not a, not my best segue, I have to say. I just had to get out of that <laughs> I, w- I had no idea what the next segment yeah, was going to be based um, on, on that segment. I, I guess this is sort of the end result of the longstanding interest uh, by the world, really, in who Shakespeare mm-hmm. was or wasn't, and how basically we got these plays that seem impossible. Right. And, and especially since we don't know who the person is or we we do, but people don't want to believe it um, in an unusual. I've never seen something like this before. There's been a lot of theories about people wrote some of the plays and maybe helped right. with some of the plays. But um, the new Oxford Shakespeare is putting that, you know, really to paper. And Christopher Marlowe is getting a co-writer credit, basically. Um, with Shakespeare on three of the Henry VI plays. Using old-fashioned scholarship and 21st century computerized tools to analyze text, the edition's international scholars have contended that Shakespeare's collaboration with other playwrights was far more extensive than has been realized till now. Henry VI, parts one, two, and three are among as many as 17 plays that they now believe contain writing by other people, sometimes several hands. Um, So there you go. Um, I'm not sure what to make of this exactly, I'm a little worried. I mean, I don't kind of like we talked about with the Harper Lee to kill a mockingbird. I hope there's a long editorial note about this, because if it just says Marlowe and I think it's a little bold to use computers and like old fashioned scholarship and say, you know what? We're just going to say that this was co-written by Marlowe. I I don't. Does that seem bold to you? I'm I'm a little I'm not sure. I I guess I don't really care too much about the sanctity of Shakespeare and who else is going on. But like, I seem why? Why? Why are we doing that? Why are we so obsessed with this? My starting point is why do we care so much about the sanctity of Shakespeare? Like the works are the thing here. It's not like uh like we have extensive knowledge about Shakespeare's life and how that was connected to the works. It's not he's not one of those 
writers. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I just, I personally just find this whole obsession to be boring, but I guess it's good for headlines because everyone knows who Shakespeare is. And you can stand around like at a social event or whatever and be like, oh, Shakespeare wasn't actually Shakespeare. Um, Which, do do people do that? Uh, Probably not. But I, I just don't care enough. I, I find myself torn because I love this notion of being able to use technology for textual analysis and to to discover things about literary history that we might not have known. People have done this, you know, for like to the Bible previously and been able to make the case for it not, you know, particular books of the Bible weren't actually just written by like one guy named Mark, but we can see evidence through historical documents of it and through modern textual analysis of multiple hands and changes through versions over time. And that kind of thing would be interesting to me about Shakespeare or about any major work as well. But like, it's not a surprise that it wasn't one guy just like that Shakespeare wasn't just working by himself on everything at this point. So I think now that they're in the weeds of like which plays were worked on by how many other people and who were those other people mm-hmm. is like that is far more in the weeds than I care to be, but like roll on academia. Yeah. I mean, listen, listen to this. And I, I don't know. So they say, uh, Shakespeare minus words. They're, you know, the computer is counting. These are words much less likely to appear in a Shakespeare play. So hmm. this is a, a statistical argument, not simply statistics about individual words, but combinations of individual words. With Marlowe, for example, combinations of words such as glory droopeth appear to be <laughs> unique to him in that period. So like they're kind of, they're looking at what they think they know is actually Shakespeare by himself, comparing it to the things that the computer thinks doesn't really seem. I don't know. It's like, I, this seems to me being um, precise but not accurate. You've heard me make yeah. that distinction before, yeah. right? Like, okay, but I, I just don't know. What are we adding to the discourse? I guess maybe the the breaking of the monolith that Shakespeare was uniquely talented, blah, 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 is interesting, mm-hmm. right? It's not just a yeah. he was a an alien uh, consciousness sort of dropped into <laughs> our midst uh, 600 years ago, but actually it's much more collaborative and borrowing and uh, intertextual and things like that. I, I guess that's interesting um, on a, on a larger scale to, you know, someone who's generally interested in books that this idea of Shakespeare is plop down 27 plays. They're all him, no one else. Maybe that's interesting. You know, that some of his gene quote unquote genius bled into other people and then bled into him from other people. I guess um, that that's interesting. But boy, it does seem to credit Marlowe, the name next to Shakespeare's with only sort of circumstantial evidence. I don't know. It's, it's, it's an odd thing to be. We're so obsessed with that. We're so obsessed with those, those plays and who wrote what word and what play and everything like that. Um, one last note on there. Um, also, the other thing is happening, too, where Shakespeare is cre- being credited with writing some of Marlowe's scenes. Hmm. Um, the painter scene in the Spanish tragedy. I'm sorry. Uh, a kid. Sorry, Thomas Kidd's Spanish tragedy. Um, is credit to Shakespeare now. So the other the the the, the streams are being reversed as well in some of those cases, um, which is interesting as well. Okay, where, where yeah, do you want to go next? Just don't care. You want to talk about some TV stuff? Yeah, briefly. Yeah, yeah let's so, do that. 
Uh, this just broke uh, yesterday, but I, it just came across um, my desk this morning that HBO has acquired U.S. and Canadian rights to J.K. Rowling's Cormoran Strike. Uh, Robert Galbraith's Cormoran Strike. Robert Galbraith. Are we still doing this? This this pre- are we still enacting the well, charade? I mean, this headline says limited series based on J.K. Rowling's mm. best-selling crime novels written under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith. Okay, so well, we're over the charade. Well, I, I speaking, think. Of, well, there's something I care about even less um, than Shakespeare and Marlowe is who we. <laughs> <laughs> who is, who is Robert who is, Galbraith? <laughs> I am Robert Galbraith. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, what are the other details? Guess, Tell me about the other details. Uh, so rumors have been swirling uh, for about a year now about the series being headed uh, to HBO. A British actor named Tom Burke, who was in War and Peace and The Musketeers, is going to star in Cormoran Strike. It's going to air as three separate event series. Mm. Um, so The Cuckoo's Calling will be three hours. The Silkworm will be two hours. And Career of Evil will be two hours. Hours. Huh. So functionally, there's one movie for each book. Hmm. Uh, it's not like a long running series like based on the character. I like it too. Yeah. Um, I think most often a movie for a book is a better plan than a than a long running TV series or like twelve episodes. Yeah, of TV I guess it de- I don't, for a book, a mystery especially seems yeah. uh, suited to hard a movie. to stretch it out. Yeah. Um, Cormoran Strike, it centers on Cormoran. Uh, the series will be called Cormoran Strike. It'll center on the character who's a war vet, if you haven't read the books, uh, a war vet turned private detective who works out of a tiny office in London. He's wounded both physically and psychologically, but of course, because he's a detective in a book, has unique insight uh, and it proves crucial in solving these three complex cases. Uh, so no info here. I haven't read any of these yet. I I'm ashamed uh, to we're say. We're not really but mystery people, let's be honest. You yeah, and I are not true. great mystery that's readers. True. We are not great mystery people. Um, but I'm hearing good things. Uh, we were Bob and I were just visiting friends this weekend uh, that were telling us that they've been listening to these on audio and enjoying them. So there's no info here about exactly when yeah. this is going to come out, but they've cast a star. They know how it's laid out. There's probably a script, I guess, probably watch like in the next year or so um, to see these. Filming starts this fall, so I would guess maybe uh, spring or next summer. Uh, we'll see the first ones roll out. So that is happening. Well, let me stop you there. If you're inter- if you want to listen to the Corman strike, maybe you should try Audible. Oh, you look know, at that. the leading maybe try the world's leading purveyor of audiobooks and, and audio content. I, this is a suggestion here. <laughs> at your gym during your commute, Audible has audiobooks from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers and business information providers. Free app. You know this stuff. Let's remind you again because it's time to like try Audible if you haven't. You can download and listen on your Kindle Fire, your Android phone, iPad, whatever else, and over 500 MP3 players. Unlike a streaming or rental service, you keep your downloads. Those files are yours. Um, even if you no longer are a member with Audible, you can still play them through the app anytime, anywhere from your smartphone. Also have a great listen guarantee. You don't like it? Return it. Get your credit back. Use it on something else. No questions asked. Really easy to do. Um, just for our listeners, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash bookriot today to start your free trial. Again, that's audible.com slash bookriot. I don't know if I talked about The Pigeon Tunnel by John le Carre in one of the Audible spots, but it was I awesome. I can't remember if you did or if we just talked about it, it was together, how awesome. he's like the most interesting man in the world. The most, I, I thought it was Oliver Sacks. Uh, I think it might be John Le Carre, and and I have a I have a big my big board of the most interesting mm-hmm. people in the world, and uh, it, there's some movement at the top. Let's just put it that way um, between Le Carre and Oliver Sacks. Um, really, stories about his life as a writer. Um, he doesn't talk about his spy stuff like the, his. 
really interesting at the beginning, he says, you know, I can't, not only have I basically uh, committed to the British government to keep what I did secret, but also the people I worked with and their families. I consider that sort of a secret trust yeah. that extends to them, their children, and their children's children. But that's not to say there's not Jews. You know, him <laughs> dancing with Yasser Arafat and meeting with Rus- Russian mobsters and all sorts of really interesting stuff from his life, doing research for his, for his um, spy novel. So I, I can really recommend that. It's amazing. I am just about finished with I'm Judging You, The Do Better Ah, Manual by Lovey Ajayi. Um, Liberty recommended it on all the books, and it has been a delight to listen to. She's a writer. She's been blogging, I think. She blogged for like 13 years. She's speaking and activism and is a very, very funny woman. And this is a book about uh, bad behavior that most of us have or bad behavior that we have witnessed uh, in our digital lives, in our social lives. There's a chapter dedicated to like all the different ways that you can be a terrible friend in a group who goes out to dinner together Mm. uh, and why she judges like the friend who always uh, orders the most and wants to split the bill evenly. Uh, And the person who like posts a selfie from their grandma's wake on Facebook. Uh, And those, those one friends that like document every detail of their dating lives on social media to the point that you can like track what the pattern is going to be with anybody else that they're dating. Um, I am not nearly as funny as she is. And so attempting to sum it up is (laughs) not a thing I'm going to be great at, but the book is hilarious and smart and it will call you out on something that you don't want to admit that you do. Uh, as well. I, and it's fantastic on audio. She's been a good uh, driving companion for me for the last couple of weeks. Great. Audible.com slash book record for free trial. Let's finish up with a couple of more TV things and we'll get out of here. Um, Jennifer Lawrence attached to play Zelda Fitzgerald um, in an adaptation of Nancy Milford's bestseller Zelda, which is about her life um, mm-hmm. as an artist and also the husband of a Scott Fitzgerald in Life in the Jazz Age. Um I think this could be a really interesting book. Zelda uh-huh. Fitzgerald's a super interesting, complicated, perhaps, well, I, I would go strong on perhaps um, a very much slighted figure uh, in the history of American literature and American culture. Uh, Lawrence seems to me to be a very good choice here because she's clearly smart, also can play troubled well, yeah. um, which is going to be important here um, to make her seem both competent but also disturbed without being, I don't know, just sort of a lunatic kind of person. I I don't know if that makes sense, but there's going to be... Yeah, yeah. You don't want Zelda to come off as just a hysterical woman. Yeah, someone someone who's perhaps a genius in her own right, but she's got her own struggles. Um, You know, they haven't uh, cast Fitzgerald, um, which would be interesting. I I think it'd be funny if they did Tobey Maguire, who played Caraway in uh, in, in, (laughs) sort of Cross the Streams there a little bit. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. Milford's work is one I've been... I've been meaning to to get around to for a long time. This might be one that I finally yeah, this might a- be your push. You know, speaking about like obsessions that we won't let go yeah. of, I think Zelda Fitzgerald is fascinating oh, yeah, too. But you're it's right. interesting to me that we're still, you know, like almost a century later. So yeah. interested in her and F. Scott Fitzgerald, and it's making me wonder, like. Uh, another 80 or 100 years from now like are there contemporary literary figures that are like from right now mm. that are going to be in the movie well because the interest in- about zelda right is kind of a what if situation right like what if right. she hadn't had such trouble what if you know f scott Fitzgerald hadn't like what she what she could have done is i think is part of the interest mm-hmm. there but like is somebody making a biopic about jonathan franzen in like 2080 mm. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, Fitzgerald called her the first American flapper. I mean, that's a pretty good epithet. I mean, that's that's, <laughs> that's going to be true. hard to top, um, I think. One last um, 
uh, a TV news thing. I, I, this isn't in the show notes, but I just saw yesterday that the the last season of Sherlock is coming out ah. January first. So those of you like Set me, your and, like Michelle and I, have been have been waiting for the last season. Um, and not 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 because it'll be the last one, just the next season. It happens to be the last one. Big fan of the Sherlock series. If you haven't tried that and you like mysteries, um, it's a lot of fun. Really smart. And the thing that triggered my memory is. Each episode's like nine. It's like a long. It's like a movie-ish length. Mm, when, yeah, so when you said that, remind me to to talk about that real quick. Um, so a recommendation: those keep your your New Year's DVR buttons ready. That's our show. Um, thanks to our three sponsors: National Geographic, Audible, Penguin Random House Audiobooks. Go to tryaudiobooks.com/slash/cooking. Send us an email: podcast at bookriot.com. We got comments of this. A great source for us that we can pass on information and knowledge that you guys have that we don't. You can find show notes to this and every other episode of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com/slash/listen. And we will talk to you next week. Have a good one. <laughs>